In your majesty, come down. In your mercy, Lord, come down upon us. Glory, self, in robes of grace. You are welcome in this place where the saints are gathered. St. James. I'm glad you guys are here. <clears throat> Everybody watching on the live stream, I'm glad you're joining us too. Do some quick announcements if we can. So uh, first of all, I hate to do this to you guys. I promise this will be painless. We, we, there was something else we needed to talk about in the business meeting last week, and we pushed it off because we didn't want to take up too much time. Uh, but it, we can do it really quick. And that is, we'll do this next Sunday after the service. It'll be fast, I promise. And that is uh, the question of whether to give CCLS the permission to start digging into, you know, market research, maybe looking for teachers and stuff like that. So we need to give them an approval, yes or no, to go ahead or not. This is not set in stone. This is not, there are lots of escape hatches between now and a final decision. This is just, we need to decide as a congregation, is this something that we want to allow them to look into? So we'll talk about that next week. If you have any questions, so to repeat, we are not giving them, we're not saying to them, yes, go ahead. We're, we're all in. We're saying, yeah, we are willing to let you look into it. So we'll talk about that next Sunday. If you have any questions, I'll let me know. 
Midweek Advent service, uh, Wednesday night at 7, join us here, or you can live stream. A couple quick things about Christmas services. Christmas Eve, we'll be meeting here in person at 11.30 for a candlelight service. Um, I believe that's going to be live streamed as well. If uh, for whatever reason you don't want to be here, you can't be here. Christmas morning at 9 o'clock, I'm not sure if that will be live streamed or not, but we will have services here at 9 o'clock Christmas morning. Uh, Let me know if you have any questions about those. Today, youth confirmation at 11.30, um, adult Bible study at 12.30, that's on Zoom, youth confirmation's in person, person. new members class tonight at 6.30 p.m., uh, that's in person here, uh, just come and hang out if you want to, you don't need to have come to any of the prior classes in order to come and uh, hang out with us. That's tonight here at, uh, did I say 6.30? I think I meant 6. It's at 6 o'clock. Uh, one more thing, too, is... Um, this is uh, sort of uh, pulled together last minute. Uh, Thursday evening at 5.30 at, the, at Chuck and Debbie's house. And if you need their address, you can ask them. They're both here. Or uh, if, you're watching, um, uh, if you're watching the live stream and you'd like to show up, uh, let me know. I can get you their address. Uh, we're going to meet at their house, uh, whoever wants to. And uh, Chuck, apparently, I've been told, I did not know this, is... Uh, an amateur astronomer, and that's maybe he's even better than that. But he's got a telescope, and he's going to show us the two planets uh, which are lining up. And we'll just get together and hang out, and uh, Chuck will describe what we're looking at and that sort of thing. That'll be Thursday evening at 5:30. Uh, Chuck says you kind of need to be there pretty close to 5:30 because there's a window of time when you can see it, uh, when it's dark enough that you can see it, but it hasn't set yet. So. Uh, close to 5.30. Let me know, or actually, better yet, just uh, if you're here, talk to Chuck and Debbie if you have any questions about that. I think that's all the announcements that I have. Um, Check out the back of the bulletin for Mercy Ministry stuff. Uh, Let's go ahead and stand and we'll begin worship. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's confess our sin to God. O Lord, great God, all holy, Father most gracious, filled with mercy and steadfast love, We are embarrassed to come before you, for we have rebelled against your wisdom and have gotten into trouble, for we have rejected your fatherly guidance and have gotten lost altogether, and therefore we are embarrassed. To you belongs righteousness, O Lord, and to us confusion of face. O Lord, great God, all holy, Father, most gracious, filled with mercy and steadfast love, incline your ear to our troubles. Hear us when we pour out our sorrows before you. Forgive us, not on the ground of our own righteousness, but on the ground of your great mercy. On the ground of your great mercy, in the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. It is in His name that we pray. He is our Savior and the mediator of the covenant of grace. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the Gospel of Christ from John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God sent the son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Amen. Psalm 126. Okay, let me say, you're going to say a word in here. and I, I, I want to tell you what it means before you say it. Uh, the word is uh, negev, and it's just the Hebrew word. It's, it's literally the Hebrew word for south. But the way it's used here, it's the south which in Judea was desert. 
So that's, you'll understand when we get there why we're saying that word. Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. Epistle reading is, uh, for this Sunday is from 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the first chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and didn't deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Messiah nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ.
Old Testament reading is from Isaiah 61. There's a lot here. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. This is the word of the Lord. So uh, when I was in, uh, when I first started seminary, so one of the classes, you take a bunch of different types of classes in seminary. One of the classes that you have to take, of course, is like a class on, a series of classes on how to preach. And you, you kind of start off with a big room filled with all the first years. And there's a lecture about how to preach. And then the following semesters, you'll break up into smaller groups, you know, groups of six, seven, and then you'll work on preaching stuff, whatever. You guys aren't interested in that. But the first semester was uh, led by a, a guy named Brian Chapel, who's a phenomenal preacher. And he's written a book about preaching, which is really good, called christ Center Preaching. And one of the things he emphasized in there was that when you're preparing a sermon, uh, so yeah, here's, uh, this is a, a look at how the sausage is made, which that always sort of implies that what I'm about to say is really important, and it's really not that interesting. But when, you, when you're preparing a sermon, uh, one of the things you do is you look at the text, and he would say, look for the way the text describes the fallen condition of humans in that text. Look at it and see what does this text say? It could be something moral, like, you know, that the law is going to address. It could be like stealing or greed or lust or something like that. It could just be larger parts, larger aspects of human brokenness that really aren't necessarily moral. You, worrying about your own mortality. It's not necessarily a sin. But there's lots of texts in the Bible that talk about mortality and promises for the future. It could be it could, a bunch of different things. But you look at the text and you ask, what is this text saying about the fallen condition of humans. But, so all that to say this, when you look at Isaiah 61, the problem you have is that the brokenness is pervasive. It's, it's thick and it's everywhere. There's so many different things that this text is addressing. It's not one specific aspect of our lives in a screwed up world as screwed up people living with other screwed up people. It's all different kinds of stuff. So for instance, in verse one you get poverty. To bring good news to the poor is the third line there. It's a question about that. Is that material poverty 
Or is it like, uh, you know, mental poverty could be? It could be emotional poverty. It could just be generally weak people. But it actually doesn't matter, you know. It can mean all these things in the Old Testament. Uh, people who are mourning, very next line, the brokenhearted. If you, uh, if you want to jump down to verse, uh, last line of verse 2, you'll get more mourning there to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, etc. Last part of verse 1, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, we in the West, we like to spiritualize this, you know. What's he talking about here? Well, he's talking about like emotional, cap- maybe, you're, maybe you're captive to porn, or maybe you're a slave to gambling, or just a slave to your own bad temper habits. But actually, it's not what it's talking about here. It actually literally means, it's real easy for us to spiritualize this. Really. It really means like political prisoners. Like people who the bad guys, the corrupt system has thrown in prison and is oppressing. God wants to release those people. This is, this is like all different kinds of brokenness, right? It's emotional, it's mourning, it's economic, it's being poor. It's, it could be a system, it could be a, a, a it could be political. You're in prison because you're uh, against the bad guys. So there's all different kinds of things going on here. And so this is like our lives too. You know, I, <clears throat> when I talk to people and um, for, sometimes I'll talk to people who are struggling with issues and what will come across is their belief that if I can get this one thing fixed, if I can get this part of my life fixed, I'm going to be happy. And I don't ever want to be discouraging, but knowing from my own experience that like, if you get that part of your life fixed, you actually, there's something else that's going to pop up. You know, life is a game, in so many ways, life is a game of whack-a-mole with your troubles. You're never ever going to be in a spot where you're like, okay, now I'm cool. There's always going to be something there. There's a horizontal, you know, the, 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 the amount of things that we struggle with here in Isaiah 61 and in our lives, there's a horizontal aspect where they're just everywhere. There's just a multitude of things. If it's not your health, it's your relationships. If it's not your relationships, it's your money. If it's not your money, it's your bad attitude. Whatever it is, you know, it's the weather. It's, you know, it's politics. It's your favorite sports team losing. Whatever it is, there's going to be a multitude of these bad things that are happening. And not only is there a lot of bad things happening in our lives, but it's actually, there's, there's a horizontal aspect. There's actually a vertical aspect to it, to, to brokenness. It has, so listen to me, it has seeped down into our souls. You've lived with it your whole life. You've lived with people who are broken your whole life. You've lived in a world that's broken your whole life. You've been marinating in brokenness your whole life. And it is a part of the flavor of the deepest part of your soul, is brokenness. You get that here in verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. Uh, Second line, uh, talking about the fix here, but what I want you to notice is the last three things in each of these next three lines. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, that's the second thing, and the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. You see the progression here from ashes to mourning to a faint spirit? The ashes are kind of the outward sign. It's the physical circumstances of, in this case, mourning. Everything that's wrong with your life is going to have physical aspects to it. Parts of, you know, parts of your day-to-day that are affected by stuff. But it's not long before that physical part is actually affecting who you are inside. That's the second thing. Mourning is actually an emotional part of the physical ashes. But you seep long enough inside of that mourning, and the next step is going to be the faint spirit. That word faint there, I know, I know it maybe can sound like 
you know, swooning or something like that. It's actually just the word for like the spirit that's ready to die, the spirit that's ready to give up. And, and this is the way brokenness is in the world. You know, it, it moves. It, it, it moves from the outside. I don't know. Marinade is just the best analogy I can come with. It moves from the outside to actually seep down into the deepest part of us who are humans. So one of my kids is uh, watching. It's a very seasonal thing, right? Watching It's a Wonderful Life because that's what you do in December of every year, apparently. So we're watching It's a Wonderful Life, and I was kind of halfway watching it over her shoulder the past week. You know, and as I was studying this, I was like, oh, this is, like, this is what George Bailey's going through. And do you mind if I talk about It's a Wonderful Life? Am, am I going to spoil this for anybody? It's, it's, it's what, 80, almost 70, 80 years old now, so it's your fault if it is spoiled. I, I've given you long enough. So George Bailey, you know, he starts off, he's young and he's idealistic, right? He's going to be like, he's going to conquer the world. And then through circumstances, you know, but partly because he's a nice guy, partly because of like family stuff, he ends up taking over this podunk savings and loan in this little town. And okay, this is the ashes. (laughs) You know, this part of his physical world is day to day that it's not what he planned. It's not the way he wanted things to be, but it's not long before that seeps down inside of him into mourning, into deep frustration that the dreams that he had are never going to get fulfilled. There's this one scene in the middle that I always think when I watch it, again, I think Jimmy Stewart's a good actor when I see this. So there's this scene where he and his wife, they're young, and they meet a a friend of his from high school who has made it, who's wealthy and everything together. And they're talking, they're outside next to his car, and they're talking, and they're kind of putting on a brave face, you know, like, yeah, we're doing good too. And he's all happy, and then his friend, his wealthy friend, uh, same age as him, but has made it financially, pulls away, and he turns around and he kicks the side of his car. You know, he's, it's okay, but it's starting to get to him. These crushed dreams are starting to drag him down. He's moved from the ashes to the morning. But as time goes on, and the morning and the ashes start to multiply, and he just sort of sits in them. This is my life. This is who I am goes through stuff like, you know, the Great Depression and losing the money that, that his uh, savings and loan has. He hits faint spirit. He hits despair. And he tries to kill himself. This is a very, very extreme example of what this is talking about, right? Not all of us go through those stages writ so large like you have to do in a movie in order to, like, create emotional impact, which will make people want to come and buy the tickets to make the money to offset the cost of making the movie. Most of our lives aren't like that, but they are somewhat the circumstances of our life in a broken world start to affect us emotionally. And you seep in that long enough, which it won't take that long. You know, what, what do you, when, was it that, when was it that you first realized that all the dreams you had had passed you by? That the thing that you imagined you would be when you were, you know, fill in the blank, junior high, high school, college, maybe even grad school, that, 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 that those things, you were not going to achieve that level and that this is who I am. You, you sit in that long enough and faint spirit is what you're going to get. Despair, brokenness. I have nothing left inside to give this game that I've been playing for so long. This is the brokenness that's being described here in Isaiah 61. And the reason why it is, a little historical stuff on Isaiah 61, the reason why this is the case is, to use an Isianic word, exile. You're not home yet. You know that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. You're not content running a savings and loan that's been robbed by the richest man in town who's about to rub you out. You're not content with that. Even the people that are closest to you that you love, you're not content with them either. Even the person that you know best, 
say this all the time, even the person that looks back at you from the mirror, you don't like that person. There's a gap there between you and him, and you don't like the person, and you don't like the gap that's there. You're not home yet. It hasn't been fixed. Well, so let's get, get on to the good stuff here. Isaiah 61 describes a fixing of these problems. God is determined to fix these problems. But because the problem is so pervasive, it has to be, the problem is pervasive, the solution has to be pervasive as well. The problem is systemic, the solution has to be systemic. The problem is thorough, the solution has to be thorough. The problem is us, me and you, the solution has to be from outside of us, me and you. It has to be something so this is, the, this is the interesting part about, um, one of the interesting parts about It's a Wonderful Life, right, is that it's a very, very un-American film. Like, George Bailey doesn't solve the problem by going out and getting a revenge killing on the bad guy. You know, that's, you know if you were going to write the American movie, he would figure out some way to blow, what's this guy's name, Mr. Potter away. Or, you know, he would figure out a way to, like, pull some strings or figure out the financial strategy that, that would, like, make the success of the savings and loan Great, you know, and it would become like a, a real big institution and start branches in all the other towns and turn into a whole, he would turn into a Mr. Potter himself if you were going to write the American movie. But instead, how does his problem get solved in It's a Wonderful Life? Well, two things. One is that he prays. He prays and asks God for help. The second thing is, is that his friends, unbeknownst to him, like get together and bail him out. You know, this, is why the, this is why this movie touches us because as much as we like to believe in like the American dream of self-sufficiency, in our deepest hearts, faint spirit level, you know it's not going to work. You know you have nothing left to give to this game. And you're going to need some outside help. You're going to need your friends to band together and come and rescue you. And the word for that is gospel. In fact, look back at verse 1. This is the, this is the gospel that's going to fix this, right? I mean, you knew I was going to say this eventually. You, you walked into a Christian church this morning. It's the gospel that fixes this. Look at verse one. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Okay, for some of you, this will be old news, but the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Bible that Jesus and his friends would have all read, when they got to this text, what word in Greek do you imagine is behind the word good news? It's the word gospel. It's the gospel that's being preached to the poor. Now, wait a minute, you say to me. Why is the gospel being preached to the poor? They don't need the gospel. They need money. They don't need, like the gospel tells us that we're going to heaven when we die, but on this other level, we need money, right? Why do the prisoners need the gospel? They don't need the gospel. They need to be let out of prison or, you know, pay the price if they're in there justly. Well, no, this is what Isaiah 61 is insisting is, no, the gospel is the solution to all those things. Again, let me ride on this dead horse for a few minutes. I've been saying this, I've been trying to say this in almost every sermon I preach, so I, I realize that it might be old for some of you. The gospel is not about you getting to heaven when you die. The gospel is about God fixing everything that's wrong in the world. The, the gospel is about God remarinating you so that your experience of life is, look at verse three again, beautiful headdress, oil of gladness, garment of praise. It's got its own progression. It goes from being a sort of a surface thing to the oil that's poured on you and covers your whole body. This echoes the, uh, this echoes the psalm about Aaron being anointed with oil and the oil dripping down his beard and onto his clothing. To a new identity, garments of praise. This isn't just about clothing, that last line. It's about the clothes that you would wear when you are in a state of praise. You would take off the official clothing. We don't wear official clothing typically. You know, sometimes you have, you know, black clothing at funerals and stuff like that. Festive clothing at weddings. It's sort of like that. Taking off your official clothing of mourning and being dressed with the official clothing of I am now living in praise. 
That's what God's, this is what the gospel is designed to do to you. It's what it's, it's, this is the goal of the gospel. On a more macro level, look at verse four. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities. The devastations of many generations. Generational devastation. The effects of sin on, on, on an entire, so, so you see what he's saying here? Is that the gospel is not just designed to comfort you in your mourning. It's, it's, it's certainly not designed to get you to heaven when you die. That's a byproduct of it. It's not designed to be a, a gift for you individually to cure your mourning. Again, that's a part of it. It's not designed just to get you out of prison. That's a part of it. It's designed to rebuild cities. What does that mean? Well, we're trying to spiritualize it. You know what it means? To rebuild cities. That's exactly what it means. So I'm, I'm, I actually consider myself to be a loyal St. Louisan. I was born in St. Louis. I love my city. I don't think it's any news in here to anybody that the city is a shambles. It's economically, socially, it's a huge mess. The gospel, what God is saying here is that God, God is determined to rebuild that city. He's determined to rebuild what humans and their sinfulness have broken down. What is the gospel? Three things here. Let me give you three things. We'll go through these quickly. First of all, the gospel is God's rule, then it's God's favor, and then it's God's repair. It's God's rule. First of all, Isaiah 52, 7 says this, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the one who brings gospel, who says to Israel, your God is the king. Your God reigns. Your God is in charge. First of all, the gospel is the announcement that God is in charge, that God, God has the power to fix all this stuff. God has the power to cure your mourning. He has the power to rebuild St. Louis. God has the power to do all these things. Second thing, God's favor. Look at verse two. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God likes you. Can I say this again? It's maybe the most important thing I'm gonna say in this sermon. God likes you. Do you imagine that God's relationship with you is based upon some sort of transaction? You know, my parents baptized me and now God has liked me. I believe in Jesus, now he has to be on my side. No, God actually likes you. He loves you. I was talking to somebody, um, I was talking to a couple in our church about a couple who aren't in our church, but they know each other, and I didn't know that they were friends until I saw on social media that they hung out. And so I asked the couple in the church, how do you know them, that you know our other friends? And the wife of the couple in the church said, oh, we saw them at an event, and I said to my husband, like, that's the kind of, th those are our people. Like, let's go talk to them. They did. They basically walked up to him and said, you know, we're going to be friends, the four of us. They didn't really actually say that. That'd be creepy. But that's what it amounted to. Like, basically, like, hey, we're, and, and they to this day are fast friends. That's how God feels about you. You are his type of people. He wants a relationship. He loves you. He takes pleasure in you being connected to him. He has favor on you. Second thing, look down at verse uh, eight, uh, third line down. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Let's, let's take it up a notch. He doesn't just like you. He's committed to this liking you. He likes you so much that he's like, I'm in on you forever. Whatever you do, I'm buying into you forever. Like, you're my people, and I'm not letting go. We're going to be friends a long time. Take it up one more level. Look down at the uh, middle, middle of verse 9. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. He likes you, yes. He's committed to you, yes. He wants you in his family. He wants you to be his kid. He wants you to know what it's like to be completely loved by the guy who owns everything in the world and has said, here, everything in the world that belongs to me belongs to you. He wants you to experience that. He wants to give you all these gifts. This is the gospel. 
is that God wants to fix everything because he likes you so much. He loves you so much. And he's completely committed to doing it. Okay, so how does he do it? This is not, it's Christianity 101 where I'm headed here, right? How does he do it? Look back up at verse one. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, who is this talking about? It's not talking about, this is the kind of thing that would be discussed in synagogues for millennia. This text would be opened up and they would read this text and they would say, okay, uh, who is this? It sounds like it's Isaiah, right? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. But is it really Isaiah? It can't be possibly because Isaiah never figured out poverty. He never solved the poverty problem. This, what about the devastation of cities? A hundred years after Isaiah was around, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. This is clearly not Isaiah. Well, who is it talking about? This is the way the discussion in the synagogues would go. Well, they would say, who's who's line two talking about? Because the Lord has anointed me once more with the Greek and Hebrew. Forgive me. In Hebrew, what do you think the verb is that gets translated anoint here? It's the verb for, you don't have to answer. It's the verb for, uh, it's, it's actually not the verb for, it's the verb Messiah. It's just in Hebrew, it's just the word Messiah. Because the Lord has Messiahed me, has anointed me. Who are we talking about here? We're talking about the anointed one. We're talking about the Messiah. We're talking about the future Christ. And this is the kind of thing that would be discussed in synagogues, is when is this future anointed one going to come and fix things? In Luke chapter 4, it's a fascinating story. Jesus walks into a synagogue in his hometown, and as, as an, a grown male man, male man, it's uh, uh, redundant, unless you're talking about a male man, but this is, uh, he's a grown male, He's, illiterate. he's allowed to stand up and read from the Isaiah scroll, from the scroll that's being talked about that day. So he asks for the Isaiah scroll, and he turns to Isaiah 61. Jesus, in, in Luke 4, you can go check it out for yourself, he reads this text. He stands up and he says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And he reads verse 1 in the first line of verse 2. And Luke says, he sits down, and the eyes of everybody in the room were staring at him. And what Jesus doesn't do is start the typical rabbinic conversation. Who do you think this is talking about, he might ask. He doesn't do that. In fact, he preaches a super short sermon. He just says, today, this is fulfilled in your sight. I'm here. I'm here to do this. I'm here to release the prisoners. I'm here to comfort the mourn. I'm here to climb into the deepest part of you and take out the bad marinade and start marinating you with praise and with hope, and with righteousness. I'm going to plant you like oaks of righteousness, and you're going to be there for my glory forever. I'm here to take on all your grief so that you can escape mourning. I'm here to take on all your poverty. I'm here to, take, I'm here to give up everything that belongs to me so that you can have everything that belongs to me. I'm here to give up my life so that you can have your life. I'm here to give up my glory so that you can have glory. I'm here to take on all your sin so that you can have righteousness. This is what I'm here for, and this is what I'm going to do. This is, how it gets, this is how it gets to you. It gets to you through Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, when you've experienced that, one more thing. Let me do one more thing, and then we'll be done. How do you know that you've actually experienced this? How do you know that you've experienced the hope of Isaiah 61 in Jesus Christ? How do you know that you've made contact with the one who can transform you and your world from the inside out? Not just transform your heart, but rebuild your city and everything in between. How do you know when you've made contact with that one? Well, the answer here is in verse 3. Look at verse 3. 
Um, last line, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. When it happens to you, God will get glory. When it happens to you, you will give God glory. Same thing in the very last line. Look at verse 11, our very last verse in our text. So when all this happens, the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Praise is going to sprout up before all the nations. You will know you've made contact with this when your mouth and your body and your brain are moved to praising him. Now, I just quoted this um, a couple weeks ago in a sermon, so you're going to have to forgive me. I'm going to quote it again, but I've been kind of living in, I've been kind of living in this C.S. Lewis quote for the past couple weeks. Here's what he says about this. It seems petty, doesn't it? It seems petty that God would be like, and this is the way a lot of us think about it. Like God says, okay, I'll save you, but I, you have to praise me. You know, I'll die on the cross for you, but I need you to tell me what a great guy I am. And part of you is like, part of me is like, well, that seems a little egotistical. It seems a little needy, doesn't it? But God knows that praise completes the circle of relational wholeness. Praise completes the circle of relational wholeness. God knows this. And he's not asking you to do something that's not natural. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. All enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. You see what he's saying? You will always praise the thing that you enjoy. Now the question is, what do you enjoy? Are you enjoying complete healing in Jesus Christ? It will be inevitable that you'll praise it. You'll praise him for it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their lovers. Readers praising their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather. Praise of wines. Praise of food, praise of actors, praise of motors, praise of horses, praise of colleges, countries, historical personages, praise of children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians, politicians or scholars. Just as men, here's what he says, you will inevitably praise the things that you love, that, you, that bring you enjoyment, that bring you fulfillment. And not only that, here's what he says. Men, men don't just spontaneously praise whatever they value. They also spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely, you might say, about a baby? Saying, I'm going to praise this beautiful thing, and I'm going to invite whoever's around me to praise it too. Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? Isaiah, in telling everyone to praise God, is doing what all men do when they speak about what they care about. Praise flows out of what you care about, right? And next level here from C.S. Lewis. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Praise completes the enjoyment of the thing that you're praising or the person that you're praising. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Some of you have noticed, for those of you who watch sports on TV, this is almost universally acknowledged in 2020. There's something wrong. There's something not wrong, but off about watching golf or basketball or baseball or football or hockey on TV in 2020. And you already know what it is. I mean, you can sense it when you watch it. It's weird. It's totally weird that there's no fans there. It's totally weird for somebody to drain a three-pointer from the baseline when the buzzer goes off and there'd be silence except for his teammates congratulating you know, him or her. It feels weird. Do you know why it feels weird? Because there's something completely appropriate. Look, whether you're in peewee or whether you're a professional, the reason, one of the reasons, be honest with yourself, one of the reasons why you work hard is because 
it gives people pleasure when you drain the 20-foot putt. This is why like making a hole in one with nobody around is a real bummer, right? This is why like when you when you're playing pick up, even you're playing pickup ball with your friends and you make a great shot, if nobody says anything to you, there's something missing. Because praise completes the circle of relational wholeness. So Angela says this to me like so if I if I, if I'm out of town or something and like the kids are are like at, you know, they've got some event or something that are at Angela's home. I'll, I'll talk to her and I'll be like, what are you, you know, you going to have for dinner tonight? And she'll, she'll always say this to me. She'll always be like, I don't know. I'm not cooking. I don't want to cook for just me. You know, and it's not that she's lazy. She cooks like crazy all the time. It's not that she's lazy. It's that if she makes a beautiful meal, she wants to make it for other people to enjoy. And she wants to see on their faces the enjoyment and to hear them say, this is really good. Now, if you want to say to her, oh, that's just egotistical. You're just weak-minded and petty. You'd be completely ungrateful for the food that she just cooked you. You would never say that because you totally get what she's saying. And so when God says here, praise me, all he's saying is complete the relational wholeness. If you've really come in contact with the Jesus who loves you so much that he would die for you, you can't help but praise him. God, I want to lay, listen to me. I'm not laying law on you here now. But when unbelievers or visitors walk into this room and we're singing hymns and it's completely dead, you know what it tells them? Like nobody in here has made contact with anything that's actually real. I don't know why they're in here, but it obviously doesn't mean anything to him. And I'm, I'm, you guys, I'm not talking to you guys necessarily, but you're not like that. I'm talking in churches in general that have not made contact, actual contact. I mean, we might be playing the game of the gospel. To make contact, though, with the God who saves, you can't help but praise it. So, I'm, again, I'm not, I'm not telling you, what I'm not saying, don't, don't go in the back door. I'm not saying, so start praising really hard. I'm saying, Taste and see that the God who loves you is good. Feast on the gospel. Go back to the God who can actually deal with your faint spirit. Go back to the heart of the God who wants to rebuild our cities, who wants to release the captives. And I'm telling you, when you make contact with him, when you see him face to face, when you know him for who he really is, you won't be able to help but praise him. Let's pray. Stand with me and we'll have, pray and have communion. Let's pray. God, we come before you this morning confessing our cold hearts. And it's certainly not anything that you've done. It's that we have grown blind to the glory of your gospel. That we've become calloused to our own brokenness maybe. Maybe we've figured out, I know in my own heart, I figured out ways to deal with my brokenness by covering them up with distracting activities or hobbies or um, books to read or movies to watch, trips to take. But God, face to face with the faintness of spirit that is mine here in Isaiah 61, I can't help but look, help, help me to turn to you afresh and to experience your glory, the power of the God who wants to rescue me in my world. Lord, in your mercy. God, be with St. James. Uh, be with us as we're... Uh, on your mission, that, that, that's, that sounds wrong. Be with us as you've put us on your mission. And all the things that we've got going on uh, now, uh, Father, that are for your glory and to, be, to participate in this rebuilding of uh, cities and repairing of mourning hearts. The mercy, I'm thinking especially, God, about the mercy ministries. I just praise you for those and uh, the way that we've been able to experience who you are by experiencing your healing power in the world, 
Uh, help us to stay on, keep on opening these doors for us, Father. Doors where we can uh, live out your gospel, the gospel of the God who heals the faint spirit in our community. Lord, in your mercy. And God, be with all those who have faint spirits and who mourn or who are just in the ashes stage right now, who have uh, weeks and months and years ahead of them of mourning. Uh, be with our cities. Be with Glen Carbon and heal it. Be with St. Louis and heal it. Be with the prisoners. Father, be with those who are oppressed. Be with those who um, are broken by their own sin. Heal all these people, God, broken in their own bodies and in their own uh, minds. Heal all these people for your glory. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we can only come to you and pray these prayers because you're such a good God and because you've invited us, because you don't just like us, but that you've committed yourself to us. And you've not just committed yourself to us, You've committed, to, you've committed yourself to us as our Father and we as your children. And so we're coming into your throne room now and always as your kids. So we pray to you as our Father in the name of your Son, our brother, Jesus. Amen. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day He rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. And He will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that He taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.